A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad that you're with us on the program today. So we are starting to see uh, some media outlets uh, declare Joe Biden the winner of the 2020 presidential election. Now, I'm not uh, willing to say that this election is over and done with because we are going to a recount in Georgia. We are going to have court fights in uh, Pennsylvania uh, and in Nevada. Still don't know uh, what the final numbers are going to look like in Arizona, but it looks like it is going to be razor thin. So I know, and I've been wanting to do um, a show for the past few days on, you know, what the future is going to look like for gun owners here over the next couple of years. I, I think we're almost there, but uh, but I, I don't want to get, uh, you know, too far out in front of my skis. So coming up on Monday's Bearing Arms Camera Company, we're going to be talking with uh, some industry experts about what they anticipate uh, over the next couple of years if, in fact, Joe Biden is the next president uh, of the United States. I have said. Uh, at BarronArms.com, that uh, if that is the case, and uh, Joe Biden is the 46th president of the United States of America, uh, I believe that gun owners, at least for now anyway, may have averted the worst case scenario of Joe Biden being able to ram through his gun ban and so-called buyback of semi-automatic firearms. Uh, It looks like legislatively, if uh, Biden is president, he is going to be stymied um, in the uh, in Congress uh, right now, it looks like Republicans will have at least 50 Senate seats, could have as many as 52. Uh, both of the Georgia Senate races are going uh, to a runoff election, and that is going to be crucially important to determine the control of the U.S. Senate. Right now, uh, Republicans have 50 seats. If Democrats were to win both of those runoffs in Georgia, uh, then It would be a 50-50 split. Vice President Kamala Harris in a Biden administration uh, would be the tie-breaking vote in the Senate because the vice president also serves as the president of the Senate, a largely ceremonial role unless there are ties, right? So she would be the tie-breaking vote. Now, I happen to believe that the worst-case disaster uh, has been averted in this election because I, I don't think although I'm happy to be uh, uh, proven wrong. Well, I wouldn't be happy to be proven wrong. I'd be really sad if I was proven wrong, but I'm willing to listen to other arguments. Uh, but I, I believe with a 50-50 split uh, in the Senate, uh, Republicans making gains in the House, they are not going to have a majority, it looks like. I mean, there's still an outside possibility that Republicans could actually take control of the House, uh, but they are certainly going to pick up at least 10 seats, maybe more, uh, I, I, I just, at this point, uh, today, Friday, November the 6th, I would say that it is going to be really difficult, uh, for Joe Biden and anti-gun activists to get exactly what they wanted, which was a majority large enough to nuke the cloture rule, allow for legislation to be passed by 51 votes in the Senate, pack the Supreme Court full of anti-gun justices. I think even if Joe Biden is elected, I think that's off the table for at least two years until the midterms. And and that's good news. Now, again, I'm, I'm happy to have this discussion. In fact, we're going to get into it deeper on Monday. Uh, but that's where I think we stand at the moment right now. Now, coming up on the program today, uh, we've got a special treat. You know, I, I generally try to keep this program 
current events, but if you have watched Cam and Company for a while or you uh, know BearingArms.com, you know that I'm a history lover. Uh, and there is a new book out that I think gun owners are really, really uh, going to enjoy. Krista Rose is the author. Uh, he's a, a fantastic writer. And the book is called The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens, and how World War II veterans won the only successful armed rebellion since the Revolution. This book uh, came out just a couple of days ago, focuses not on a battle in Athens, Greece, uh, but a battle in Athens, Tennessee, that uh, uh, flared up uh, in the aftermath of World War II as veterans were arriving home. Uh, and in uh, one county in Tennessee, these veterans ended up taking on the political machine that was running things in their county. It is a, a fascinating uh, piece of American history, one that is not taught in any history books, and one that was really uh, downplayed at the time uh, in papers across the United States. So there are a lot of Americans who don't know this story, but it is a fascinating one. Uh, and again, I mean, you know, all this talk now about voter fraud uh, and uh, ballot irregularities and things of that nature, as bad as things might be right now, when you learn more about the Battle of Athens and you see how the machine was running politics, it is impossible to escape the conclusion that um, things are much better now than they were back then. So without any further ado, here's our conversation with author Krista Rose, the uh, new book again, The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens, and how World War II veterans won the only successful armed rebellion since the revolution. Take a look and a listen. Hey, Chris, thank you so much, sir, for coming on the program. It's great talking with you today. Oh, it's great. To ha it's great to be here. Thank you, Cam. Yeah, and the uh, the brand new book is out, The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens, and how World War II veterans won the only successful armed rebellion since the revolution. Uh, this is a story that I, I'd like to think that most gun owners know, but given... You know, honestly, I mean, this doesn't appear in your high school history book, right? You didn't learn about the Battle of Athens in school. Uh, and I'm guessing that there are probably a lot of Americans, including some gun owners, who have never actually heard this story. Yeah, it was purposely obscured at the time because these veterans who had taken the stand against the corrupt political machine that had dominated their hometown for a decade and was in the process of stealing an election from them, they'd committed a lot of crimes right? Aggravated assault, theft, robbery, kidnapping, and uh, a host of others. So they kept their mouths shut to try to avoid uh, legal repercussions. Um, and then the community around Athens decided, you know, we have to move on with our lives. And after the battle, they really buried the story. And so while the rest of the country and the rest of the world really was fascinated by these veterans who had overthrown this corrupt political machine and an armed rebellion, the community felt like they had to keep it quiet to move on. And so you'll never find it in a history book. And, you know, it got tons of attention at the time. 17 articles in the New York Times, you know, front page coverage in Tokyo and Buenos Aires and Berlin. But um, really in the decades that followed, it, as we were just talking before we started this broadcast, it's really been the Second Amendment community that has kept the story alive to the extent that it's still out there. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, and, and to, to me, this story, first of all, I mean, you go back and you read what happened in 1946, and we're going to get into this. Um, and you are very thankful. You know, I mean, we live in uncertain times today. 
but you 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 read about the corruption and the graft that was involved uh, in the attempts to again control the lives of these folks at the local level, uh, and 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 thankfully this is not something that we run across um, every day in 2020. Uh, this is a this is going to be a surprising story for a lot of folks because it does not necessarily reflect, I think, where we are as a society right now. But but you know I look at the Battle of Athens. And I look at your book, quite frankly, um, in the same vein as uh, Charles Cobb's "This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed," uh, which is about the, uh, the 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 self-defense movement within the civil rights movement. And these are, you know, again, that that's a subject that I think is pretty close to the hearts of Second Amendment advocates. But I don't necessarily know how many, you know, non-gunning Americans are aware of these stories that ultimately are about individuals getting together uh, in defense of their liberties. I mean, that that's the commonality, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, Harlan Turnbow in Mississippi in the 1950s or Bill White in Athens, Tennessee in McGinn County or McMinn County in the 1946. Yeah, I think that's right. And, um, and, and so you're right. The situation that they're in would be unrecognizable to most Americans today. I think most Americans will look at what this community endured for 10 years having uh being forced out of polling places at gunpoint, having ballot boxes taken by armed men into the jail uh to be counted in secret, uh and being assaulted, intimidated at polling places, having to vote on transparent ballots, and having the government issue reprisals against family members and the candidates who decided to challenge them or spoke out against them. You really would feel more like you were reading about Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan rather than the home front during World War II. And when these veterans came back after having been told that they were fighting for the freedom of the world, that they were representing the free world against the slave world and fighting the Axis powers, to come home to this community where their grandparents and parents, siblings, had been terrorized and denied the right to vote for years, it was simply intolerable for them. I mean, some of these men were getting arrested on the bus coming back from war on made-up charges by sheriff's deputies who were paid per arrest. And so they would lose their mustering out pay coming back from war to the men who were sworn to protect them, sometimes minutes after they got off the bus back home. Really, really hard to imagine today. Absolutely. Um, and yet, this did happen. And 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 so how did this, how did this go from, uh, you know, a, a case of oppression uh, to a, a case of fighting back. I mean, how did those veterans uh, organize in McMinn County after they got home from the war? Sure. Well, you know, they got to talking at the VFW and, and talking about the war, talking about their plans for the future. But the subject kept coming back to how dire the situation was at home and how they really had to confront this monster in the house before they could move forward with their lives. So, Republicans, Democrats, independents, they set aside their political differences and formed an all-veterans party uh, ticket. So the GI ticket was made up of veterans from all political stripes, and they nominated five veterans for office. Again, Republicans, Democrats from different parts of the county, the main objective was getting their democracy back and getting their right to vote back. And so uh, they run these candidates for office. The machine really signals early on that they're not going to they're not going to be willing to lose this election in the ballot box. Uh, you have GI volunteers arrested, assaulted, trying to put up placards. Their headquarters were vandalized. 
um, there were threats against members of the ticket and um, sometimes in person, sometimes over the phone, sometimes through the mail. And Bill White really has a clear-eyed view of this. He knows it's going to come down to fighting. He stands up at a meeting and he says, do you think these guys are really going to let you win this election? But the other veterans in the room who were far from cowards, they were very brave men. They've been in dangerous situations. They've seen people die. They've been injured. And um, they still you know, had no appetite for violence. And so they, they, they really said, you know, we're not interested in that. We don't think it'll come down to this, even though it always had in the past. And on election day, you know, the sheriff has over 250 men under arms in McMinn County to safeguard the election uh, and to take it away from the GIs. So from the beginning of the day, you have Bud Evans, who's a GI poll watcher, two-time Purple Heart recipient. He wants to see that the ballot box is empty before the voting begins. He's beaten up, arrested, taken to the jail. Bob Harrell, who's a veteran of the war in Europe, is a feet over the head with a club by Deputy Minnis Wilburn for challenging an illegitimate voter. Tom Gillespie, 60-year-old man, shows up to vote for the GI ticket in his shop. Um, and so you have an entire day of violence against the GIs and their supporters. And it looks like the machine's going to take it again. And then you have, at the end of the day, our sheriff and his men take the ballot boxes, uh, two ballot boxes into the jail. And they control the courthouse where there's a ballot box. They control the, the bank building where there's a ballot box. And so it looks like they are once again going to count the votes any way they want to, as they have been doing, and that the GIs were going to be denied their right to vote. And so you've got a small group of 20 people who Bill White really supplies the backbone for this group. He's a Marine who had been in Guadalcanal and Tarawa. And he's, you know, he gives a speech, first speech he ever gave in his life to say, you know, what are, what are we doing and what did we fight for and what did we come home to? And what are we going to do about it? We promised the people who voted for us that their votes would be counted as cash. And we need to follow through on that promise. And they armed themselves. They went home and got their guns. But as you know, um, ammunition was really in short supply on the home front in 1946 because it had all been used uh, overseas and it had all been manufactured for, for foreign use during the war. And so they actually go to the National Guard Armory and rob the National Guard Armory to get ammunition and to acquire some more guns. And then this group of about 20 people marches on the jail. They, they're standing uh, on a hill across the street from the jail and they call out for the, the sheriff and his men to bring the ballot boxes out to have a public count. And when the sheriff and his men refused, uh, the GIs opened fire on the jail. And there's a six-hour firefight that followed. Unbelievable. Um, uh, you know, I mean, again, just as you're describing this, so how many GIs do you estimate, Chris, took part uh, and, and were there? Uh, because I know that, that estimates vary, but I mean, it seems like this was a, a really large group of people who ended up coming out uh, because they, they did not want to see another election stolen. Yeah, what's remarkable is one of the things I learned while researching this is that it's actually a, a really small, dedicated group of men. It's about 20 men. So you had hundreds of GI supporters. Mm -hmm. You had hundreds of people affiliated with the GI ticket. But once things, you know, once that tension kept ratcheting up throughout the day and, um, you know, people were heading home and just saying, you know, if they, the machine wants the election this bad, they can have it, but I'm not going to risk going to prison. I'm not going to risk getting killed. And as, as Bill White said in a series of audio tapes, which have never been heard outside of his family that I was given access to, he um, said, you know, I went over, I already signed up to protect my community. And uh, when I, when I signed up for World War II after Pearl Harbor, and so I've already, we've all, we've all taken this risk and stepped out into the unknown 
and, and put our lives on the line. And so we were just doing it one more time with a heck of a, a much bigger, more direct personal stake in the outcome. Um, that was, that was how those veterans saw it. So it's only about 20 guys. So, you know, people went, came and went throughout the evening, but it's never a very big force. And so they've got about 75 men pinned down in the jail and, you know, they're controlling the embankment across the street and they've got the rooftop. They've got the window of a boarding house they're shooting out of. And so they're, they're utilizing, um, you know, different areas for cover across the streets of the jail. But really, this is, a, this is a group of about 20 men who took the definitive stand at the Battle of Athens. Okay. So, I mean, smaller than uh, even the Alamo, right? I mean, this is, but, but those, yeah. but those 20 men, um, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the ending of your book here, Chris, but, uh, but, but let, you know, let's talk a little bit about the aftermath, uh, because those 20 men ultimately, um, were successful in, in breaking the back of that machine, the, 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 the political machine based in Memphis that had spread in McMinn County. Um, they, they were successful. I'm curious, though, did, did anybody face any criminal charges, any prosecution? Did anybody go to prison? I mean, you're talking about, again, opening fire on a, on a county jail, uh, ultimately dynamite ended up being used. Did any of these GIs face legal repercussions for what happened? They didn't. And I, you know, I foiled the FBI file. The FBI, uh, who along with the DOJ had mostly ignored voting fraud in Mecklen County for the past decade, suddenly got real interested once these GIs robbed the armory and overthrew the government. And so the FBI came to town and nobody would talk to them. Nobody would, nobody would tell them what they knew. And it's funny, you're, you're, they're interviewing one person after another who I knew darn well. You know, knows who was involved, and they're telling the FBI, "Look, I I can't help you here. I don't know," and um, including the guy who was the caretaker at the armory. But um, so none of these guys faced repercussions, largely because they stopped talking about it. They made a pact that you know, if none of us discuss what we did, none of us can ever face legal repercussions. So that's the first layer of dirt over the story of the Battle of Athens. You see eyes looking not to um, be prosecuted for it. One man is prosecuted is a deputy named Wendy Wise, and he had actually shot an African-American gentleman named Tom Gillespie for trying to cast his vote for the GIs around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so they do make sure that, that, that he goes to prison for what he did. But otherwise, uh, the GIs completely escape any sort of legal responsibility because the town protected them. You know, that's, again, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. Um, and there's so much more in this book. I mean, again, you spent years researching this and the materials and the access that you were able to get, uh, I think really gives a, a full and complete story, uh, to what happened there in uh, McMinn County in 1946. Did this, how do I want to phrase this? Um, did this spread beyond McMinn County? Did were were you know, because obviously there was concern uh, and there was corruption taking place. I mean, machine politics were a thing in the South uh, and in the North uh, at that time, and you had a lot of GIs that were returning. I know there was a lot of concern in the media and in the public about the uh, possible propensity for violence from these uh, returning GIs. Um, not necessarily going against corruption, but just oh, what are we going to do with all these you know millions of men who've just come back from war? Was there anything similar to the Battle of Athens, or was there any sort of political movement, or was this more of a, a one-off uh, in American history, just one of those those moments in time and place that that you know sort of exists on its own? Yeah, so it's a remarkable one-off in the sense that this is an instance 
of these veterans utilizing their Second Amendment right to overthrow a tyrannical government. That is, is certainly an exceptional and, and unique event, really, since the revolution in this country. Um, but in the sense that it inspired people throughout the country to set up um, for veterans to get involved in politics and to challenge the machines that had run their own hometowns. Elsewhere, there was a, a veterans movement in Arkansas, uh, and uh, that helped inspire the movement in, in Athens. And so you had uh, people who were inspired by what they had stood up for their beliefs by you know, organizing and getting involved in politics and engaged in politics. But uh, to actually take up arms against the government, no, thankfully, this did not inspire a raft of, uh, of violence throughout the country, although people were very concerned that it would. And, you know, you keyed in on something that was really interesting, which was the suspicion. You know, we sent these young men overseas to go fight in World War II, and we had these suspicions that they were going to come back as violent men, and that there were real concerns in society about how they would readjust and, and how they would be able to, to, to live as civilians, which turned out to be incredibly unfair to them. Um, you know, and, you know, as it was when they come back. And, you know, a lot of this was covered by the media as a riot, as something that was out of control. As an example of the veterans who had learned to fight, couldn't set it aside when they came home from war, when, of course, nothing could be further from the truth, right? These men had, had tried through the democratic process to change their government and, um, and, and were denied that right at the ballot box. And only then, you know, did, did they take up arms in, in defense of, of their right to vote and their constitutional rights. What do you think the, um, why do people in 2020 need to know this story, Chris? So I think we need to know that, um, a couple of things, right? That, um, these guys risked their lives for your right to vote, not once overseas, but twice when they came home and came home to, to a tyrannical government that dominated their hometown. I think the, the, the greatest generation who, who, who moniker is, I think, maybe secure for all time. Um, that the greatest generation is really made up of exceptional people and they provided an example for us of doing the right thing, even when it's not the easy thing. And so that example for us today, it's not going to look like us taking up arms against the government, right? There's this situation that they were in was unique and different um, and, and almost certainly could not be replicated today. But the idea of uh, being involved, of fighting for your rights at the ballot box, and, and being engaged politically and just doing the right thing, even outside of the political context, when it's not the easy thing. I think these veterans and their generation provide an incredible example for us to follow. Absolutely. Well, again, the book is called The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens and How World War II Veterans Won the Only Successful Armed Rebellion Since the Revolution. Uh, it is out now. You can buy it at the Amazon, your local bookstore, uh, available as an ebook, as a uh, actual physical book. I prefer the physical copies, but uh, that's just me. Uh, and Chris, a- again, I'm really looking forward to, to uh, sitting down and, and reading the book for myself. Uh, but I thank you very much for coming on the program today, giving us a little bit of a taste of the uh, the new book, The Fighting Bunch. And I hope that we get a chance to talk again soon. All right, a fairly uh, timely history book. Uh, coming out the week of the election. Appreciate Krista Rose uh, joining us on the program. Let's get to our uh, armed citizen story, our uh, good deed of the day, our recidivist report as well. We'll start there with a, a case out of Bettendorf, Iowa, where a man who was facing attempted murder charges ended up walking away with three years of probation. Yeah. 
This is amazing. It's from the uh, Quad City Times. And, you know, I've got a piece of bearing arms uh, uh, right now. Uh, a, a police chief in Greenlee, Iowa, or excuse me, Greenlee, Colorado, uh, had an op-ed talking about why we're seeing an increase in violent crime. And he talked a lot about what's going on in the court systems and the slaps on the wrist that are being given to repeat violent offenders, the emptying out of jails uh, as a result of the uh, coronavirus. This is another example of the, uh, the problems that we have right now in the criminal justice system. The problems that, that, by the way, you could pass a gun ban tomorrow and it's not going to lower violent crime. You could pass a magazine ban tomorrow. It's not going to lower violent crime. It's going to violate people's constitutional rights, but it's not going to make anybody any safer. The real issue here is dealing with violent individuals, uh, both in terms of being able to make arrests and then ensuring that there are consequences for their actions. That didn't happen in this case. 30-year-old Steve Dante Hester, again, facing a charge of attempted murder in the July 7, 2018 shooting of a man outside of the Village Inn in Bettendorf. Well, he ended up pleading guilty to one count of being a felon in possession of a firearm as a habitual offender. All right. And in exchange for that guilty plea to being a felon in possession of a firearm as a habitual offender, charges of attempted murder, willful injury causing uh, serious injury, intimidation with a dangerous weapon, and conspiracy to commit a forcible felony were dropped. Yeah. And Hester walked away with three years probation. Uh, the Quad City Times reports that in addition to the probation, Hester received a suspended 15-year prison sentence that would have had a three-year minimum. So if he manages to keep his nose out of trouble for the next three years, he's done. This is just, he, he's, he's done. He's off probation. We're all good. If he gets in trouble over the next three years, there's a chance that Hester could go to prison for 15 years, but it's not going to happen. And we know that. And he knows that. Uh, Hester spent almost 20 months in the Scott County Jail awaiting trial and sentencing according to arrest affidavits filed by the Bettendorf police. Uh, police were sent to the village inn on reports of a shots fired. When they got there, they found a man who had been struck by gunfire and multiple wounds to his chest, one to his head. He actually survived this shooting thanks to the work of doctors. Through an investigation, police identified three conspirators in the shooting. Heston, or excuse me, Hester, rather, uh, 27-year-old Antone Omar Florney, 36-year-old Martel LaShawn Roberts, uh, one of the conspirators leaving the restaurant when the victim arrived, waiting outside for 11 minutes before driving his car behind a uh, Dollar General next door. Uh, then uh, Martel Roberts, driving a Dodge Durango, dropped off Hester near the restaurant, drove behind that Dollar General. Hester and Flournoy came out from behind dumpsters and opened fire on a group of people, uh, one of them advancing while the other remained in the parking lot, firing. They eventually fled behind the uh, Dollar General about a minute later, three cars seen leaving the area. Uh, Flournoy and Roberts are back in court on November 18th. Uh, the assistant county attorney, uh, Amy Devine, has filed a motion asking the court to join the men's trials, arguing that there's no reason for there to be separate trials. They're each charged with attempted murder, conspiracy to commit a forcible felony, intimidation with a dangerous firearm, willful injury causing serious injury, as well as being a felon in possession of a firearm. All three of them felons in possession of firearms. And again, based on what has happened in this case uh, with Mr. Hester, uh, I'm, 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 I'm assuming that the odds are good that none of the three individuals involved in this shooting that nearly took a man's life will be spending much time behind bars at all. And by the way, violent crime is up in the Quad City areas in Iowa this year. And it's going to continue to be bad as long as they're giving uh, violent criminals slaps on the wrist like we saw with this case. Our uh, armed citizen story of the day. 
from Georgia, Volusia, Georgia. Excuse me, I'm sorry. This is a uh, Florida. What was I thinking of, of Volusia being in uh, Georgia? I'm sorry. Volusia County, Florida. Fight over sexual gestures turns into a metal pipe assault. Shots fired. Yeah, that's the uh, headline. So apparently this started at a gas station near Daytona Beach. Uh, a couple had stopped at a Chevron station um, just to, you know, fill up. And while they're there, uh, 43-year-old Daryl Shamblin approached the man and his family in their van, started making sexual gestures towards the motorist's wife. I, I, I don't know what exactly those gestures will be, so I... Can't reenact them for you. The man then got into an argument with uh, Shamblin, the the guy's, you know, the wife's husband. Shamblin then leaves the area, comes back with a metal pipe, whacks the guy in the head. That is when the uh, husband pulled out his legally carried firearm, fired shots at Shamblin, uh, missing him. Shamblin then took off running, prompting a search by a canine unit, a, a SWAT team member, and a, a sheriff's helicopter. Uh, on Monday, deputies who responded to the shooting call said that Shamblin struck the victim in the face. He was found at his home, not too far from where he attacked the motorist. He was charged with burglary with assault or battery, as well as violation of his probation. Yep. Because court records show that uh, Shamblin had pleaded no contest in June of this year, just a few months ago, to aggravated battery on a person 65 years or older after attacking his father because his father threw away a beer that Shamblin was drinking. Shamblin was already on probation at the time and was not allowed to consume alcohol, according to reports. And again, he whacked his dad. His dad threw away his beer. Sounds like a real winner of a guy, by the way, Mr. Shamblin. I try not to, uh, you know, uh, cast too much judgment on the uh, folks that we talk about here in this program. But uh, Mr. Shamblin sounds like a real piece of work. Uh, he was placed on three years probation after attacking his dad. And now violating that probation and um, attacking a complete stranger who was uh, able to protect himself thanks to his legally owned firearm. So I think Shamlin could have been our recidivist report as well today, but we'll go ahead and put this in the armed citizen category. And finally, our good deed of the day, Roswell, Georgia. Maybe that's why I was thinking of Volusia, Georgia. Roswell, Georgia, where a police officer saved a teenager's life uh, just a, a short time ago. This according to uh, uh, local media there, Matthew Perry. Saving a 14-year-old there in Roswell from choking. Perry's part of the uh, Traffic Enforcement Unit. He's been with the police department there in Roswell for about seven years or so. He was patrolling back on November 4th when he noticed a vehicle stopped in a turn lane. Driver flashing the headlights, honking his horn. So Perry pulls over. A uh, woman gets out of the car, says, My 14-year-old's in the front seat, choking on food, can't breathe. Uh, Officer Perry got the kid out of the vehicle, performed the Heimlich maneuver. Then a few seconds, child able to breathe again. Life saved, and uh, Matthew Perry, not not the actor, but certainly a friend to that uh, 14-year-old in Roswell, Georgia, in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing, and we thank you, sir, for your very good deed. All right, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. We will be back on Monday again, uh, taking a closer look at the aftermath of the 2020 election as it uh, shakes out. Uh, I think we are going to be going to court in some of these states. So I think it is too early to declare a victory or defeat one way or the other. But we will start to uh, take a look at what happens uh, in the case of a Biden administration with uh, Democrats narrowly in control of the House of Representatives and at worst uh, a 50-50 tie in the U.S. Senate. If that's what the battle space looks like over the next couple of years, what does that mean 
for your right to keep and bear arms. That's what we're talking about on Monday's Bearing Arms Cam and Company. Hope you have a chance to get out and uh, enjoy the weekend, maybe do a little bit of plinking. Try to find some ammo because I have a feeling that uh, we are going to see a continued run on firearms and ammunition over the next uh, few months. We'll maybe talk more about that on Monday's program as well. Uh, in the meantime, be well, be safe, be free, and we'll see you soon with another edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. <laughs> <laughs>